Hey, it's Talk Gnosis, the web's premier talk show about Gnosticism, mysticism, magic, politics, community, commercialization, ancient wisdom, escaping the Black Iron Prison, social media, whatever else we feel like talking about. I'm Deacon Jonathan Stewart, joined by our uh, regular uh, substitute guest host, who's now here at least once a month. We've got Jason. Hello, Jason. Hello. I, I consider myself sub-guest host. Okay, okay, I'll be the Dom guest host then. Uh, the the topic tonight, so far I'm calling the show Magic and Community Within the Black Iron Prison with Angie Speaks. Hello, Angie Speaks. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation. Uh, oh my God, and sorry to take the, the Lord's name in vain, but um, uh, I, I am even more excited. Uh, I hate to use the phrase content creator, but you are one of my favorite. Hey, I'll just say favorite. You're my favorite Aww, content creator. Wow, that's that's huge. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm really happy to, to express my parasocial <laughs> friendship with you <laughs> in this direct way. Uh, Thank, you. Thank you, best friend. But... <laughs> Before before we get to uh, uh, this wonderful blossoming uh, conversation between good intimate friends, <laughs> we have some business to get out of the way because this is what the Black Iron Prison requires of us, which is our commercial for Patreon. Now, I know you look at me and Jason and Lainey and Father Tony and everybody else who works on the show and they're like, wow. He runs an independent theater company, or wow, a freelance copywriter. They must be independently wealthy. Well, I hate to disabuse you, <laughs> we are all very poor, and we literally could not do the show without your financial support. We do hire the world's best digital studio, 99 Perspectives, out of Chicago. When you do your show, you should hire them too. Uh, therefore, uh, we ask if you are able to and you like the show, please go to patreon.com slash Gnostic. You can donate for as little as a dollar per piece of media per month. You can put a cap on that in case we do a thousand pieces of media that month. If you're unable to do a recurring subscription, you can go to paypal.com slash paypal.me slash Gnostic, and you can do a one-time donation there. Uh, if you do donate to the Patreon so far, I need to refresh the goals. We, uh, we send you the show early. So you get that. And we don't really give you anything else because we don't want to put spirituality behind a paywall because it makes us feel icky. But feel free to email me if you have any ideas of what you what we what we can give you in exchange for your money besides this this glorious show. Uh, if you're unable to donate, we completely understand. These are tough times. They'll probably be tough times forever. You can also uh, uh, spread the word on social media. You can share your favorite episode. Your favorite episode is probably going to be this one. Share this one. Uh, tell people about the show. <laughs> like and subscribe. Uh, all that good stuff. Word of mouth. Just, you know, sending it to people in an email. Uh, leaving us a review. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. These help us quite a bit. Okay, the commercial is over. Uh, Angie, uh, there's probably going to be, unfortunately, um, uh, a lot of people who may not be familiar of who you are. Hopefully, the, the people who don't, are uh, uh, by the end of this, will immediately go and subscribe to everything that you do. But Angie, who are you? How did you get into witchcraft and magical spirituality, and, and how did you start making content? Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, first of all. <laughs> um, I'm Angie Speaks. Uh, I am a YouTuber and I, I focus on 
um, politics with sort of a spiritual, mystical flair. I am also the co-host of a podcast called No Society, which is sort of a political and comedy podcast, but I try to sort of sneak little tidbits of spirituality in there um, when I can. Um, I um, I actually got into magic through art. That was what led me to um, pursue a spiritual paradigm. Um, I started getting really interested in comic books at a young age and I found Alan Moore and that it was all sort of downhill from there. I, st I discovered William Blake through him. I discovered, um, and through William Blake, I, I discovered people like Austin Osmond Sphere and it just sort of became this huge sort of um, journey into discovering all these different traditions of Western occultism. Um, but then I kind of uh, discovered through that the goddess traditions, which sort of led me back home to um, African spirituality, specifically Ifa. Um, I'm originally Yoruba, that's uh, the culture that I hail from, and I'd never really had much interest in the Yoruba paradigm until I um, started to take goddess spirituality a lot more seriously, and it became this sort of very enriching force in my life, not just personally in terms of personal development and spiritual development, but also politically as well. Um, there was a lot that sort of resonated with me in terms of our world and the way that it's going and um, you know the, the archetype of the goddess and what it represents. And um, within the Yoruba paradigm, the sort of three major goddesses became uh, huge kind of um, symbols for me in my spiritual practice. So my spiritual practice is sort of a hodgepodge of a bunch of different things from the Western paradigm and, and the African paradigm uh, specifically. So yeah, that that's how I that's how I came to this this point. Amazing, and I know that uh, actually both Jason and I have some similar some overlaps of some similar origin stories, wherein uh, I, I believe uh, Jason did come to Gnosticism partly through Alan Moore, um, that as did I, uh, as well as the the composer Satie, who was involved with the Gnostics and Esotericists of the of the eighteen hundreds. I was reading about him and finding out about all this this funky stuff he was into, uh, and I'm sure as we'll talk about in this episode, and as we talk about a lot on Talk Gnosis. Uh, and to quote the mangled uh, the, the thought of Alan Moore, you know, <laughs> magic and creativity are an imagination, but they're they're deeply linked. They might even be the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get into that, uh, before we go to the immateria, <laughs> let's go to the material. So, so for people who don't know your political work, uh, you mostly work from a, a class-based materialist um, uh, political paradigm. Now, there is a, a very common conception that this that this particular um, stream of politics mm -hmm. is opposed to spirituality. You know, if we mm -hmm. go back to Marx, he said the religion is the opiate of the masses. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So, is is this correct? And and how can you make it work? If so. Well, that's one of the biggest sort of stumbling blocks of this frame of, of political um, ideology and those who ascribe to it. Um, one of the biggest, um, you know, you know, stumbling blocks for the political left, not only now, but also in the past, has been its um, abandoning of the symbolic domain. And, you know, it's it's ironic because the far right has a massive hold over the symbolic domain and they're not afraid to sort of you know tell a better story or 
use the symbolic domain to their advantage to sort of speak to the unconscious aspects of of human nature and uh, you know the left is constantly surrendering ter surrendering territory constantly ceding territory and constantly um, abandoning the idea of the immaterial and the relationship between the material and the immaterial um it was one of the things that comes to mind is the dadaist movement um uh and during its inception many of the main Dadaist uh, artists like Francis Picabia, Andre Breton, were uh, very deeply steeped within Marxist uh, culture and you know, the, the Communist Party in Zurich during that time. Uh, but they had a massive falling out with the Communist Party because the Communist Party wanted them to create a sort of utilitarian art, one that only spoke to working class aspirations, um, but they understood art as being an exploration of, of you know, of, 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 of deeper things than just the material sort of mundane aspects of propaganda. They understood it as a way of understanding man and man's nature and through man understanding the universe. And they saw any sort of mistake in this process as a mistake in interpreting the universe and also, you know, our own plight. Um, it was sort of an as above, so below line that they took. And I guess as a Marxist and as somebody who also has a spiritual paradigm, I sort of take the as above, so below model seriously. Um, the material and the immaterial working in tandem in order to create a better reality for everyone. Um, it's important that for if we want to self-actualize, if we want to pursue our goals, if we want to be able to, um, you know, realize our potential, we do need good material conditions in order to do that. And there's a hell of a lot of potential that is wasted on this planet because people don't have access to the time they need, to the resources they need. Uh, people are sort of cogs in a wheel, slaving away, uh, alienated from the labor that they do alienated from the communities, atomized. Um, and we do need a shift in the material conditions in order for self-actualization to occur. But in order for us to have a shift in the conditions, we have to speak to people's unconscious um, aspects as well. Um, nobody wants to hear boring materialism. It's not enough to move people. It's not enough to really make people um, pursue or understand their best interests people will usually go for whatever story is told best. And right now, neoliberal, the neoliberal hegemony or the far right are telling a much better story than the materialist left are. And that's something that I find incredibly concerning. Um, and I feel like one of my, the things that I've tried to do in my work is sort of release and unleash the material and the symbolic power that, that um, this sort of paradigm has within it. Yeah. And that actually leads in uh, quite well to my next question, talking about uh, unleashing paradigms, unleashing archetypes, um, telling better I stories. Uh, you, you've spoken in in some of your uh, videos about how embracing and living the archetype of the witch can, can be liberating. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I will. But I think Jason had a question. Did you, did oh, you want to say something? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry, that's, yeah, I just wanted to, I guess maybe I, I just wanted to, agree with what you were saying there about the notion of how the right has a much more compelling if not accurate story um and whereas the left is it, all it's doing is commenting on the other story so they've i, I think i think did, i think you might have used the word abdicated like did they abdicate 
the narrative landscape to the right? It's sort of a surrendering of territory. It's a ceding of ground. And um, I guess my, my definition of the left sort of differs from the mainstream. What most people understand as the left, especially in our countries, America and the UK, is, uh, you know, your typical sort of bog standard neoliberal. Um, mm -hmm. That's what's considered left. Uh, well, when I'm talking about left, I'm talking about people who have a materialist analysis, um, you know, sort of Marxist analysis that's based upon, you know, the shared interest among working class people. Um, the left mm -hmm. um, in seeding the territory of the symbolic, the sort of um, image of the left, what you see, this neoliberal constituency has replaced it with identity politics. And identity politics is almost like a religion. It's almost taken the place of that symbolic domain, but it's a very sort of hollow and uh, unsatisfying um, sort of paradigm that has been used to replace the lack of symbolic power um, within it. Um, but, for, but when we're talking about sort of the materialist left, um, which is what I allied myself with, um, there's also been a massive problem with the seeding of, of that territory, the seeding of that ability to shape a narrative that animates people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just really felt like that was a, such an important point. I wanted to spend a bit more time on it, but I think it does lead perfectly, John, into your next uh, uh, question. Yes, and thank you, Jason. And also, I hate looking at my stupid face when <laughs> when I do this show. So just jump in there. Um, I, I, I may not. I may not be looking at the at the monitor and and seeing your beautiful face. So uh, okay, I'm just going to ask a question again, which is Angie speaks. Um, so talking about the storytelling, I, I really like how you talk about unleashing right the power of of, of the symbolic of the immaterial, of mm -hmm. the archetypical. So mm -hmm. how can unleashing, living and embracing the archetype of the witch be liberating? Um, well, it's different for different people, but you know, within our current sort of neoliberal paradigm where you know, market, marketized logic it has basically invaded everything, the witch has sort of devolved into a consumer identity, um, which you see on places like Tumblr, you know, Instagram, even TikTok now, that's sort of a, a huge fad. And yeah, the witch has sort of become, has, has sort of devolved into, it's been recuperated, the sort of symbolic power of the witch has been recuperated by the current capitalist hegemony and sort of turned into a consumer identity, um, an identity that has more to do with consumption and the idea of self-actualization through consumption. Um, rather than anything truly spiritual, which is something that I find very sad. But in order to sort of rescue the symbolic power of the witch, um, you know, looking at history, looking at the traditions that, um, you know, mostly women during antiquity kind of used to keep their, their spirits intact in a very kind of, um, in a very hostile environment, um, understanding that the witch was a subversive figure. Um, the witch wasn't this sparkly sort of pop cultural figure. She was a subversive figure. She was somebody who polite society feared, but she was also a very integral part of the community. And when people wanted subversive knowledge or sacred knowledge, um, they would go to her in order to uh, you know, get what they needed. And I've, it's, it's an archetype that I've always identified with, especially because the politics I have are, you know, very much in contrast with the status quo. So I sort of see myself as a witch of the wood in the woods in in this in some sort of way. I sort of see myself as as that kind of figure. 
and I see the sort of through line of stories and lives of different women throughout the ages represented by this archetype. And it's a very sort of powerful paradigm um, to draw from. And I think that there are a lot of, there are, there are a few, but there are quite a few women who I feel today represent this, uh, this archetype and are, are working within it. It, it, it does. I, I mean, you already mentioned uh, the TikTok and it being commercialized and being commodified, but it sure seems popular to be a witch or a neo-pagan or belong to, to which I think is a phrase I invented. I don't know, but to belong to be, <laughs> have a magical spirituality. That's the phrase I'm using mm. as an umbrella. Mm. Um, why, why? Like, why Why is this popular right now? Where is it coming from? Mm. Why are so many people uh, becoming witches? Do you have any theories about this? Well, age of Aquarius, number one. And as an Aquarius, I can definitely <laughs> attest. But I feel like this, um, this new Aeon has both a sort of positive and negative manifestation and sort of you know, we're not, we're, you know, the, you know, as Crowley talked about, like the becoming child archetype and, you know, the age of Horus and, you know, um, this new sort of liberating individualist paradigm, you know, the age of Pisces has passed and we are now, you know, the, you know, the, the dying God is no longer as relevant. And now it's sort of the age of, you know, in the individual and in our current neoliberal hegemony where the individual atomized subjects the individual divorced from community and social bonds the individual as consumer the individual as worker and worker alone um, is the paradigm it's very easy for spirituality to also get wrapped up within that paradigm but that doesn't mean that the concept of the individual is um necessarily terrible or to be viewed with suspicion on in its positive aspect, um, individual self-actualization um, is something positive and it's something that should be encouraged. But when it's recuperated into the dominant ideology of neoliberalism, um, it can manifest itself in very pernicious ways. And I would say that the sort of spirituality that you're seeing today, uh, this sort of faddish spirituality, there's something distinctly neoliberal about it. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw the... Um, Tumblr, the sorry, the TikTok which is hexing the moon yes. um, thing. <laughs> There's something distinctly sort of neoliberal about the idea of uh, magic or spirituality as a tool for instant gratification. There's no real tethering to any. It's very postmodern in the sense that it's, there's no real tethering to any sort of tradition or historical throughline. It's sort of this detour, deterritorialization of magic and spirituality to the point that it becomes solely about the individual consumer in the moment and their instant gratification and themselves as the center um, divorced from any sort of grounding or community kind of um, force within it and it, there's something there's something that i view as, as pernicious and also in line with the dominant paradigm of, of capitalism and, and neoliberalism which i'm incredibly critical of um, that, oh, sorry. that uh, actually sorry. gets me, gets me, uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that gets me going on a, on a thought here. <laughs> um, is, uh, so I think you're right. Every, everything you just said about the TikTok situation is correct. But I, I, I think the devil's advocate thought that I had, or perhaps a demiurge's advocate yes. uh, <laughs> thought that I had, is, um, that like, is there not also a kind of, um, uh, 
an, an interesting kind of anarchy or in the, um, and I'm, I'm going to reference some of the work that I've seen you reference in your videos, but also that I've, uh, that we, that I know Alan Moore's talked about, about the salve and coagula, mm -hmm. is that like, is, is this kind of anarchic, individualistic, whatever I feel like, uh, witchcraft, like witch talk thing, is there also an element of them kind of like stripping everything down to try to find what are the useful parts? I think that there can be that to an extent, but we're not talking about it in a vacuum. We exist under a dominating ideology and the dominant ideology of our times is neoliberalism. And any sort of analysis that's devoid of, a, of an analysis of, of what is hegemonic, I feel is lacking. Um, th there's an element of um, freedom that these paradigms give us in terms of exploration and the proliferation of information. But what we're seeing is the solve happening and not, not too much coagula, if you know what I mean. There's a whole lot of mm -hmm. deconstruction of old forms happening, but there hasn't been enough work done to sort of rebuild new meta-narratives. Um, and that's sort of where it devolves into this like nihilistic, um, endless implosion into this sort of narcissistic image of the self, which I feel mm -hmm. can be very spiritually and magically dangerous. There's nothing wrong with experimenting. There's nothing wrong with having an eclectic spirituality. I definitely have an eclectic spirituality and I tend to take what works, but it's sort of the difference between like Alan Moore's paradigm and a Grant Morrison's paradigm. And I know we're going to get into that <laughs> later, but I, I, I think you can already tell where my, um, where my uh, proclivities uh, lean. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think that is a great summation, and I'm stealing it and using it the next time I have to debate this subject with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just just going back um, uh, to, to some of the things that you were saying in 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 the previous answer, uh, which really spoke to me, is is the New Age, the Age of Aquarius, which actually uh, the, our Gnostic ancestors, Jason and I, and, and a lot of the, the liturgical Gnostic people, we have lineages that go back to the 1800s. And those those Gnostics thought that a new age was was, was dawning too, right? They, mm. they were part of, they, they saw that uh, the Gnosticism had returned to, to the earth, that the divine feminine was back in mm. the uh, guise of Sophia, and they thought that the age of Aquarius was coming in. Now, mm. I believe the Gnosticism actually has a specific teaching about this new age which is there's two contrasts about divinity in narcissism one is that the individual is divine right but also there's the demiurge which is the small grasping evil individual lonely separated from community that's why the, mm -hmm. the demiurge goes crazy right mm -hmm. because he, he is he is hidden and kicked out of the pleroma the fullness with the other divine beings and mm -hmm. by being forced to be an individual mm -hmm. he goes crazy mm -hmm. so you know i have this theory that that this is actually a teaching and about how the new age can manifest it can go mm -hmm. one of two extremes mm -hmm. the the divinity of all of us the inner divinity the individual and community divinity that's the new age that we want right mm -hmm. all of us united mm -hmm. as gods or mm -hmm. it can swing the other way the demiurgic way the yes demiurgic way the, yeah. the interesting thing is I, I i was talking to meme analysis which is, who's a youtube friend who does um this these like jungian kind of analyses of popular memes um and i would definitely highly recommend um 
his channel also if you want to interview him you oh definitely God, yeah. should because he's he's very uh very fascinating um but i was talking to him about the new aeon and um it's sort of the idea of the becoming child in the crawlian sense or like the the oedipal child um and if you look at what the system is doing to us right now um you know the atomized consumer is so before within capitalism you know not capitalism sort of atomized us away from our massive communities and our, our sort of bonds with uh, kinship structures um, that were vast, like these sort of vast networks of agrarian kinship structures we had got atomized as, uh, you know, industrialization came in and then the nuclear family sort of became the ultimate unit of ideological production and consumption for the system. But now we're seeing a shift where the atomized individual who is ordering Uber Eats in their bedroom and packages from Amazon, somebody who doesn't have social bonds, that's now the ultimate unit of ideological reproduction and consumption within our new order. And the system is further atomizing us, further sort of closing down um, domains that were once sort of social hubs. Uh, community is now totally mediated by these capitalist forces, social media, all the different places where community is now um, founded. These are all sort of owned and dominated by private companies that have their own agendas and interests. Um, and they have black box algorithmic systems that play on our behavior um, and further alienate us. And the more alienated we are, the more we consume, the more um, separate we are for our communities, the more we sort of seek spiritual solace in the sort of Oedipal realm of, of the internet. Um, so the, 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 the way that our current system is heading is sort of in the Yaldabaoth direction, in the demiurgic <laughs> direction, in the, um, in the sort of alienated, sad, cut off from um, you know, the transcendence of transpersonal experience and community cut away from the transcendence of being able to, um, uh, you know, self-realize uh, as an individual as well, which is why I feel like it's very important for people within the spiritual community to have an analysis of the hegemonic ideology of the system, of what is currently happening. Um, as above, so below, Mar Marxist materialists can't be too focused on, you know, raw materialism but i also feel like the spiritual community also needs to have a more grounded analysis of the current hegemony and what it's how it's operating and how it's hindering our spiritual goals um because it will go one of either way one of either ways we'll either be chilling with sophia or we'll be chilling with yaldabaoth um <laughs> it's up to us. <laughs> exactly. Um, before moving on to the next question, also to go back to something that you're talking about, and also to 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 tweak Jason a little bit. So, so Jason and I are are both <laughs> members of a Gnostic church. We're also both members of the same esoteric lodge. And and something that, that Jason likes to do when um, uh, when he's playing Demiurge's uh, advocate is um, in our traditions, we have a lot of mythical lineages. Now, some of them are partly historical. Some of them oh perhaps are, are archetypical. And Jason loves to to ask and talk about why, why do we need these or why do we use these? And actually something that you said uh, when you were talking about the atomized TikTok witches, how they're completely divorced from a wider system, completely divorced from a stream. And I'm not saying that people can't be individuals witches or Gnostics 
and you can't just pick up a book and do it, right? Don't get me wrong. You don't have to buy into our mythical lineages and do what we're doing. But I, I, I did, you know, something went off in my head that that having these lineages and the sense of continuity, even if it's not historically true, helps to fight against that, helps to stop us from being so atomized and um, just making up our own systems and feel part of something a lot bigger than us. Well, I, I sort of turn back to my own personal practice where I am very eclectic, um, but I also try to keep myself tethered not only to my own sort of um, affinities spiritually, but to others in terms of community as well. I think it's very important. It's very difficult to develop in a vacuum. Um, so even if you have an eclectic or individual practice, I feel like the notion of community and also historicizing one's practice, um, where even, even if it's not sort of lineages or archetypal lineages or whatever, just being able to sort of ground and historicize one's practice keeps that deterritorialization from occurring, which inevitably leads to a sense of spiritual isolation and atomization. Um, so there's, it's, it's not about sort of adopting a very sort of traditionalist approach or mindset towards, um, towards uh, spirituality. It's about re-territorializing oneself and embedding oneself socially and spiritually and being able to find a way of historicizing your, um, your, um, your process, um, which I found incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, and I've been on both ends. I've been the sort of atomized, alienated kind of witch, and I and I feel much better, much more grounded, and a lot more, um, you know, potent in my practice. Why, when I'm socially embedded and also have a sort of historical throughline um, of archetypes, of historical figures, of traditions to uh, draw from. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of how I view it. Yeah. So my next question, I moved up from the bottom of the sheet because uh, like within with the Within our, our church, we, for instance, have uh, people who range in, from all sorts of political stances, from monarchists to anarchists. And within uh, our fan base, uh, the, the, well, the, the Gnostic elite, the, those who love talk Gnosis, I know they're all over the place politically as well. And mm. I know there's got to at least be statistically one person right now punching the wall being like, I want to listen to a thing about podcasts. I don't want to be preached out about the Marxism. They're putting fluoride in my water. Anyways, <laughs> I, how, when it comes to spirituality and religion and magical spirituality, can people with radically different political beliefs exist together in community and how? Of course. And it's one, one of the core tenets of Marxism is uniting the working class based upon shared interests and shared goals and mutually beneficial material objectives. Um, so I don't too much care about what other people believe politically. I care about what we can do together that benefits us mutually um, and benefits uh, you know, us mutually, not just spiritually, but also materially as well. That's what's important to me, um, not necessarily where on the political spectrum somebody falls or um, you know what, what their affiliation may be. It's all about what our mutual interests are and we all benefit from a world where we're less atomized. We all benefit from a world where we're more socially and spiritually embedded 
and we would all benefit from a world that had material conditions that allowed everyone to unleash their fullest potential. Um, and, and that's kind of where I fall on, on the spectrum uh, of things. But um, of course, people who have different political beliefs can, you know, organize together the same way, like, you know, if I'm at a meeting of trade unionists, we're not there to discuss, you know, what someone thinks about Trump. We're there to, you know, make sure that our workplaces are organized in a way that doesn't allow us to get screwed over by the bosses. And there are, of course, going to be people there who don't believe, you know, certain political lines that I believe or have different opinions on certain social issues, for instance. Um, but we're there to do a job and we're there to do something that mutually benefits us all. And I think that sort of cross ideological um, pollination on things that are mutually beneficial is important. Okay, but before I before I, I keep going, Jason, do you, do you got anything before I, I keep going through the sheet? Uh, no, I mean, I, there, there's some big questions that I definitely want to get to before we close. But uh, uh, yeah, you ask your next question. Okay, we're this this is the question right before we dive into the Alan Moore. So, <laughs> but it is actually connected. So, in my humble opinion, community. Uh, which is a word I use a lot on the show, I feel like it's a much abused word, particularly mm -hmm. online. It's, mm -hmm. it's stuff like stan culture, fan culture, a healthy example of community that leads to human thriving. And, and how do we build authentic community? Well, that's the thing. Um, the way in which the ways in which our current system provides for building community are alienated and they're also mediated by consumption a lot of the time, whether that be consuming a content creator or being part of a consumer fandom culture. Um, you know, even before the advent of the internet, what was the community hearth of most places? The mall, um, all of these different places that are sort of centered around alienated consumption. And I feel like there's there, it's very difficult to create quote unquote community um, that's truly uh, holistic um, and embedded on these platforms. Um, we it, They're good platforms in terms of being able to um, uh, spread information, but the kind of parasocial communities that have arisen are not really community. They're sort of a neoliberal kind of alienated substitute for the real yearning for community that all of us have within us. And the only place that we can really create community is offline. The only place where we can really, um, so even if we're meeting people online, like try and meet people in real life, um, it's diff more difficult now, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, and that's also, you know, shutting down all kinds of um, communal hearths and it's also limiting our opportunities to meet people. So we're even more further embedded within this mode of sort of alienated, mediated forms of communication. Um, but nothing beats the sort of transpersonal experience and feedback you're able to get from other people when you're organized in solidarity in real life spaces. And I feel like, you know, when, when time time willing, if this shit is ever over, um, that's when that's where a lot of our focus should be in terms of making community mean what it actually means. The people in our vicinities, the people in our neighborhoods, the people around us, um, international community, whatever you want to call it, um, but something that's embedded off 
line and away from these sort of mediated um, spaces of consumption. Okay, the, the big question that we've been waiting to get to, why should people read Alan Moore? And what relevance is, is his work to religion and politics in 2021? Oh, wow. I have a whole video about this on my channel, so uh, I recommend checking it out. Um, it's called... I just watched it. Oh, you did? Oh, great. It's, we'll link um, it in the, in the comments, too. I, I, I am not an anarchist like Alan Moore is. I'm more of a traditional Marxist, but it's similar cousins, just like obviously certain theoretical palms here and there. Um, but, but furthermore, Alan Moore is one of the most important magicians of our time. And um, part of the reason why I really uh, resonated with his work um, more than someone like a Grant Morrison, for instance, is because it was more sort of embedded and less sort of um, neoliberal in its nature. Um, I feel like uh, uh, Grant Morrison is sort of a, a neo, he's sort of a product of the neoliberal paradigm um, in that sense. The idea of, you know, instant gratification magic, totally untethered from any sort of historicist, historicized um, progression. There's something incredibly postmodern about the way that he views magic. Um, that just doesn't resonate with uh, my my own paradigm. Not to knock anyone that does resonate with it. It's just not not for me. Um, but Alan Moore's sort of um, understanding of the zeitgeist, his um, ability to sort of fuse magical and political ideas, um, and his practicality as well is something that I really like. Um, the way that he sort of makes magic understandable and practical. Um, not just on a personal level, but also in terms of shifting consciousness. Um, it's not sort of this horrible, um, selfish kind of individualist paradigm where it's all about the self and what the self can do. And, um, you know, of course, self-actualization is important and stuff, but it's also about, you know, being able to shift paradigms, influence culture, and um, bring about, you know, change in the world through the manipulation of symbols and archetypes and, you know, different sort of magical practices. And I feel like that stuff is so valuable for magicians, uh, artists, and although Alan would argue that they're the same thing, um, anybody who's trying to create a paradigm shift in culture, Alan Moore is definitely a good uh, teacher. And uh, I've been in, in his mystery school for many years now, sort of le learning under his tutorage, and it's been a, a very valuable experience. Yeah. Jason? Uh, so uh, John knows that I'm basically just raring at the bit to talk about Alan Moore because I reference him all the time. And John and I are actually reading, doing a, a part of a, a, a Promethea read-through with some, other, some of our other associates. And... Um, uh, uh, just exploring the idea slowly, like month by month, we read a couple of issues. Um, so yeah, uh, basically it's just, I just wanna, we, we could do a whole episode just gushing, I think on on, on some of Moore's ideas, but um, uh, I think uh, um, where I'd like to kind of go from is that have you detected any um, evolution of his magical perspective? Um, from like his earliest like uh, performance poetry to some of his later work that's come out like with like Providence that kind of thing have, have you seen a uh, uh, yeah have you have you seen any development or change or refinement in that process? Um, definitely for sure. I feel like a lot of his later works, um, especially like Jerusalem, um, they're a lot more sort of pensive 
and, uh, you know, focused on the sort of development and journey of life in that sense. And then, you know, towards the middle sort of bulk of his career, there was a lot of sort of paradigm shifting, outwardly focused sort of cultural kind of um, of um, uh, focus, culturally focused uh, uh, work. Um, and his earlier stuff was very much useful in terms of like the actualization of the magician and, and all of those different things. So yeah, there's definitely been a through line and, and development there. It's definitely something I'd need to think more about um, for sure, but I definitely see a, a sort of, shift especially because i jerusalem and his film showpieces are um showpieces are the most recent things that he's done and um those are very much sort of explorations of life death the afterlife um the meaning of life obviously there's some cultural and political stuff in there but it's more existential in its tone than i think anything he's done previously yeah totally yeah i, I think there, there might also be a, a like the the more he explores the idea, the less generally idealistic it is. Yes, yes, I think that's a good way of putting it for sure. <laughs> now, uh, you were saying that you've like uh, you've been learning from Alan Moore, and you're like in his mystery school. Uh, just in case, uh, just to be clear, or just to clarify, rather, um, are you talking literally or uh, um, uh, euphemistically? No, just figuratively. I wish I okay. wish I could go to Northampton and, and like find him and thank him, but no, just just figuratively. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it, it's funny with uh, uh, so we are part of a the, we have an ongoing digital chat for for our esoteric work, uh, Jason and I and our associates, and and I know every once in a while I do like the work of Grant Morrison. Um, I don't like him, but uh, and I, I know that both of us like to. You, drop some some Grant Morrison hits uh, or things that we don't like about him into that chat. And I got to say, actually, reading his autobiography made me I like him quite a bit less. Um, and I, I really think, uh, Angie, again, for, um, for you being the best thinker online, you actually really helped clarify in my mind why Grant Morrison bugs me. So thank you so much for that. And again, no I'm... Whenever the Alan Moore, Grant Morrison uh, the thing comes up in the future, I'm just going to quote you and uh, say that I thought of that. Um, <laughs> no, but to be, don't get me wrong. I do. I don't think yeah. that Matt, that that um, Grant Morrison is valueless. Like I've I've really enjoyed his work. I have. I, I loved the Invisibles. I absolutely. I have the filth. Like I've been a follower of Grant Morrison for years, and he's also been you know someone who magically inspired me, especially when I was younger and. There are a lot of ideas he has that have certain value. I mean, he was sort of the, the spark that lit the matrix, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, he was, you know, responsible for sort of popularizing certain Gnostic ideas and this sort of skeptic skepticism about, you know, our shared reality. But I feel like he was uh, inevitably constrained by the neoliberal paradigm and um, the postmodern paradigm that's sort of entrenched within the neoliberal paradigm, this sort of deterritorialization um, and the kind of, uh, you know, uh, the instant gratification and the untethering from, you know, and of course there are other spiritual paradigms like the chaos magician, the chaos magic paradigm that's sort of st deeply rooted in that. But, you know, that came up during the seventies and the eighties, which was like sort of the genesis of Reagan and Thatcher style neoliberalism. That was, you know, the hegemonic force 
um, and the genesis of the hegemonic force of neoliberalism during the same time that the sort of chaos magic paradigm started to sort of come onto the scene. So it's no accident that the hegemonic ideology became sort of manifested within the um, magical traditions that were coming up during those times. And um, it was constrained, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. I just sort of have a criticism of the way that it was constrained by the paradigm that we all exist under. Yeah. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. Oh, sorry, I was just oh. gonna say, I also do really like the work of Graham Morrison. It's still very <laughs> meaningful for me. And I still read everything that he puts out and it's often very entertaining. And, and we've talked a lot about the invisibles on the show and it is it is a work that I, uh, I come back to quite a bit. So so sorry, mm -hmm. just so when no Graham Morrison fans come to my house and shoot me in the face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Jason. Uh, no, I was again, just gonna really agree with you there because I think there is, um, uh, in what I've often found that like a lot of people make a lot out of the 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 difference between these two creators, but I see mostly the similarities. Um, mm. uh, and that like there's a there like and also there there's a generational difference between them. I think Alan Moore's like twenty years older than Grant Morrison, um, sure. or ten years older. And so, like in a lot of respects, I think like what you mentioned there about the Reagan Reagan era chaos ma magic perspective, like, I, it, it's hard not to see Grant operating in the milieu that he's that he's in, you know, mm. um, and that like he is not the first person to accept the permission that capitalism has given people to become a brand and mm. uh, um, uh, and to become uh, to to participate basically to succeed. Mm. Um, uh, so so yeah, I just. Uh, uh, I, I think your, your point about that there's usefulness there, but also room for critique is, I love that non-mutually exclusive perspective. Yeah, of course. I mean, of course there's usefulness there, but of course there's room for there's room for critique. And of, of course the generational differences, you know, um, are also incredibly pronounced. But for me, I sort of see uh, Grant Morrison and the sort of chaos magic paradigm as the solve. And of course, mm -hmm. there's useful stuff that comes out of that sort of postmodern solve paradigm. But I see Alan Moore as sort of the genesis of the coagula. And I think he's just the sort of genesis of it. I feel like he's sort of passing the mantle on to others. To, he sort of created the tools in that sense for others to now create new meta narratives, um, ones that are more tethering and holistic than the ones that were deconstructed in the 20th century. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's important work. That's important magical work. I don't think that we can just exist within this deterritorialized sort of schizophrenic landscape. Um, I don't think that the death of meaning is something that should be celebrated. And I mean, that's something that Alan Morse talks about in Jerusalem and he talks about it in Promethea, the idea that the immateria, the immaterial world is sort of being eaten up, being eaten away by these forces. And um, the same way that postmodernism is deterritorializing, uh, neoliberal capitalism is also deterritorializing. Um, and it, it, it's funny to me that you know a lot of right-wing kind of traditionalists are so embedded within the capitalist paradigm because the things that they claim to care about, tradition, social bonds, family, um, all of those sort of meta-narratives are you know laughed at by capitalism. Capitalism doesn't care about uh, community or tradition or social bonds. It doesn't care about men the maintenance of those things. It cares about deterritorializing those things. Um, the more the la the more things are deconstructed, the more uh, the less meaning there is. The more room there is for markets to sort of fill that void. 
Um, mm. So that's kind of where my skepticism towards just this sort of accelerationist, free-flowing void of meaninglessness. I don't necessarily see that as something that can sustain itself forever. Um, of course, it's like a stage, the Solvay stage, but it's it's a stage that has to then, uh, you know, alchemize into coagula. Otherwise, it creates a sort of moral and spiritual chaos. So, uh, uh, John, I'm going to ask one of your questions on the sheet here, um, because I think this is kind of connected to that, the Solvay and the postmodernism and, and, um, and all of that kind of thing, is that there's uh, one thing in a lot of magical communities and, and conversations right now is the subject of cultural appropriation. Like, mm. um, you know, uh, uh, like, for example, you can't use tarot cards because that's from Roma culture, perhaps, or or uh, if God. a person is North American, white presenting North American, but then they want they're interested in Gnostic voodoo. Um, uh, like they, they're, they're the sort of... Um, like on one hand, it feels like it like it feels like we're it's the friction of coagula. Like as mm -hmm. as we are trying to start to bring things together, mm -hmm. um, there's almost an increased desire to like keep the walls up, mm -hmm. keep things separate. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, I think that it is valid to say that we need to respect traditions and where they come from, and that mm -hmm. taking them without understanding that is there there is something maybe pernicious there. I don't know. I'm 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 kind of I throwing I'm throwing out the subject as you've talked about regarding postmodernism and coagula? Mm. Well, uh, I have very strong opinions about this. And some of them are in a video I made called uh, Black Mermaid um, Recuperation or something. I, I forget the name of the video, but it's on my channel. Uh, you'll mm -hmm. find it. I, I made it a while ago, which is why I forget the name. But um, in my mind, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what cultural appropriation actually is. And the only things that have the power to appropriate culture in a way that's pernicious are big business interests um, that take, you know, not individuals. You see this sort of um, accusation levied against individuals, oh, you're culturally appropriating. Um, well, they're not profit, it's cultural exchange. It's not as if they're uh, profiting off of the, um, mm. it's not as if it, it's, uh, it's like this sort of pernicious, um, you know, profiteering uh, industrial complex and sometimes it can be and I feel like those are the areas where the critique is valid but for the most part it's just sort of a way that's used to demonize people who are from you know not that from quote-unquote hegemonic backgrounds um, as thieves when it's really just the sort of general cultural exchange that happens because humans are like to share information Humans are interested in things that are, you know, usually foreign and alien in some way from them. Um, and we're all human at the end of the day. And all of the spiritual traditions like belong to us. I remember I ran into some uh, far right um, uh, pagans. I, I accidentally sort of ran into a far right pagan circle and they um, they accused me of, of making their culture my prom dress. Um, it was a, a British, <laughs> it was a British, and it's ironic since I'm a, a black woman that I got accused of cultural appropriation by these people. Um, but they um, they were like, oh, your our culture is not your prom dress. I was sort of at this pagan uh, festival and um, they sort of thought that it was abhorrent that, you know, an African descendant was practicing, you know, the May Day sort of festivities. And, you know, I am part of this aisle just as much as they are. And this is where I live. <laughs> 
and my children will be born here and probably their children's children too and their children's children's children will be born here. Um, I don't think it's fair for anyone to fully lay claim to the point where they're alienating others who are genuine. Um, it's not as if I'm just trying it on for fun. I live on this aisle. The energy of this aisle surrounds me at all times. I have a deep sense of resonance to the, this land in the same way that I do to, you know, my ancestral land of, the, of Yoruba land. It's integrally a part of who I am um, in the same way. Um, and people who are genuine and people who are interested and people who want to explore spiritual paradigms that are outside of their own traditional um, basis should be welcome um, to do so. Uh, the only thing that there is really to redress are like power imbalances and uh, exploitation for profit. I think that that's where the conversation about cultural appropriation has credence, um, but mm -hmm. not necessarily among individuals, uh, uh, people who have no power to exploit one another, um, people who are just curious about other traditions and want to learn about them or who practice them and who have a genuine sort of heart for what they're doing. Um, but really and truly, a lot of these conversations have come out of that kind of bog standard liberal left paradigm that you know has enshrined identity politics as its new sort of civic religion. And um, it's more of a punitive discourse than it is one that's uh, liberating or enlightening in any way. So uh, I, give, I give permission to ignore a lot of that bullshit, unless it's about profit or, um, or exploitation <laughs> in some way. I love the phrase punitive discourse. I'm, I'm stealing that. That's like most of what comes out of the sort of liberal left um, <laughs> punitive discourse, basically. It's not really about achieving any kind of social justice. It's about trying to have power over other people. It's about trying to, um, you know, create a, a sort of um, system of dominance. And it's kind of like a woke Jim Crow. And it's something that mm. I find very, um, I find it very, very uh, pernicious. Mm, exactly. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's just very compelling. That's, um, uh, well, and, and also there's a sort of a sad irony, uh, both probably for magic and, and for the general left discourse, is that like, we're spending all of this energy tearing each other down um, instead of building new narratives and building exactly. new new exactly. uh, paradigms. Doing a lot of solve and not enough coagula. Um, yeah. And that's kind of, you know, what this, you know, bog standard kind of liberal left paradigm, you know, is, is lacking um, an actual material understanding. They sort of only focus on cultural understanding, which is why they're so obsessed with identity politics, but they don't care about class. Um, they mm -hmm. don't care about actual material analysis of oh, who owns and who's exploiting. They're not Marxists. They're just your bog standard sort of neoliberal subjects. They're Thatcherites and Reaganites parading around <laughs> as, as leftists. And they're, they're, there's nothing left about them. Absolutely nothing left about them. And that's the reason why they sort of take these, you know, um, very kind of complicated academic terms like cultural appropriation, apply them where they don't belong. Um, mm. It's about enforcement. And yeah, it's a punitive discourse. Yeah. Um. Uh, that is all amazing. Uh, the one question I have, because I know we're probably running low on time, John, um, is can you define for us Canadians bog standard? 
Oh, it just means like, you know, average or um, basic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I figured, but I wanted to just double check. <laughs> oh, man, I, I could definitely go all night, but it is literally the witching hour where Angie is. Just to clarify, <laughs> Angie is in England and it is the middle of the night. So uh, I, I guess we unfortunately should start to wrap up. And again, you know, just if you disagree with us about politics, we still love you. We want to be in community with you. Uh you are you are still completely valid, but if you have any uh, issues or anger about what we discussed tonight, please email Jason. Um, <laughs> yeah, Angie speaks. Could you reiterate where people can find you online? All of your great content, all of your great projects. Thank you so much. Um, this was a really fun conversation, and I loved I loved I love getting the opportunity to talk about. Um, spiritual stuff so th thank you very much for inviting me um you can find me on twitter at speaks angie um my youtube channel is also called angie speaks and patreon the same thing amazing okay well uh i this is deacon jonathan sword uh, i guess it's, it's time for me to to sign off uh join me next week when we have amy therese on to talk about australian voodoo and then uh nick mullen's going to be on to talk about neoplatonism but until then this is jonathan sword signing off uh, Good night, this everybody. is jason memel saying hail glycon <laughs> <laughs> and thank you very much for having me on i appreciate it it was okay. it was great Bye. Good I'm <laughs> sorry.